0: Well, happy new year, everybody. Start the new year by reading scripture. John 15, uh, Jesus, the upper room, literally the night that he's arrested, the day before he's betrayed, gives these last words to his followers. This passage will kind of serve as the trellis for our entire series over the next two months. Jesus says this, he says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. Cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit. So they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Will you read John 15:5 with me? This is kind of the key to the passage. Let's read this out loud together. Yes, I am the vine You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Words of Jesus, words of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks for standing. And uh, thanks be to God for all of his word. All right, so to begin our preaching in 2022, I want to start in a place where we often start together uh, with church history. I'm sorry, I've not turned over a new leaf in 2022. It's just what you get. So here's the church history question I want you to consider today to to start starting a message, all right? I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but what question for you? In your opinion, who was the most influential Christian of the Middle Ages? Any strong opinions in here? I'll take by your silence that this is just too emotional of an issue for you to get engaged. Now, uh, some of you may say Bob Cherry. Bob Cherry. That'd be a decent one. Uh, Others of you may say say Francis of Assisi or Thomas Aquinas or the Venerable Bede. Uh, And that's fine. And you can go through a a number of names. Jerome of Bethlehem. Everybody has their right to their own wrong opinion. Now, in my opinion, though, which I believe is the correct one, I think that the most influential Christian of the Middle Ages, which is about 500-ish to 1400, is an Italian monk named Benedict of Norcia, Benedict of Nursia. And uh, as you'll see in a second, this monk holds a very special place in my heart. Uh, But before I tell you why, let me give you a little bit of his biographical background, all right? First, uh, Benedict was born to a wealthy Christian family and he was also born a twin. In fact, his twin sister was named Scholastica. So like Benedict and Scholastica, millennials, if you're looking for names, this is like top shelf stuff right there. And for the record, his sister, uh, Scholastica, was canonized by the Roman Catholic Church as a saint. So she's a real deal. Now, as most wealthy families were able to do, when Benedict came of age, they sent him to Rome for a secondary education. And while he was in Rome being educated, he became very disillusioned with the Roman Empire around him. Again, he lived from about 480 to 550. So when he comes of age, this is at a point when the Roman Empire has already collapsed, Uh, Theodoric of the Ostrogoths is now the king over it. It was already pagan, it's gone even more pagan. Uh, He's everywhere he looks, right? There's excess and opulence and greed. There's unvirtuous lives and communities and sexual immorality and all the things, right? So he makes the decision that Rome is just too far gone. So he leaves. He goes out into the Italian wilderness, if you will, and he becomes a monk. Now, there are two different kinds of monks. There's the Eremitic uh, monks and the Cenobitic monks. The Cenobites are the ones who live together in community. The Eremites are the ones who are like hermits. They're the really weird ones if you read about them, right? Love them, but they, they just wanted to live alone. And Benedict thought he was going to do that. He was going to become a hermit who lived alone in the constant presence of God in the wilderness. He had just come to believe that living in Rome It was impossible to have a real relationship with Jesus there. Now, while he's out living kind of his holy life in the wilderness, though, people hear about him. And they're attracted uh, to his holy life. So they begin to gather around him. And before you know it, he had built monastic communities. People wanted to be a part of his irresistibly different and rigorous way of following Jesus. They found that it allowed them to live in the constant presence of God. By the time that Benedict died, he had built 12 monastic communities and through his preaching had led hundreds upon hundreds of people to Jesus. One of his uh, monastic communities was uh, uh, hosted at the place called the Monte Cassino Abbey. I have a few pictures of it for you here. Check this thing out. There it is up on a mountainside. Here's here's a path leading up uh, to to the abbey. It's a picture of the courtyard. And you understand why people wanted to go live there, right? (laughs) <laughs> but here's the thing, while the venue was beautiful and peaceful, the life that he called people to live in following Jesus was rigorous, full of discipline, like follow me as I follow Jesus. Following Benedict was not an easy thing, but again, it worked. Today, he's known as the patron saint of Europe, uh, the founder of Western monasticism, the father of cenobitic monasticism, and he's been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church as a saint. Now, today he's also, and this is how a lot of saints are treated, he's also treated as like this Jedi Yoda-like legend. So some of the stories about Benedict are just so good. I could tell you several um, if you want to, if you want to read some fun stories, go read about the two assassination attempts on them. They tried to assassinate a saint. Yeah, okay, yeah. You would never believe the kind of things that the, in in some of the overreactions of the century. You would never believe how they tried to. Anyway, so I, I want to tell you one story though, and this is my favorite one because this is when um, this is when Benedict. Well, okay, you'll see. Benedict's walking down the road one day, and uh, and he runs into a traveling physician. Uh, And uh, as he talks to this traveling physician, he comes to find out that this traveling physician is going to administer uh, medicine to a monk who's sick. But as he starts having this combo, he realizes that there's something up with this traveling physician and that he's not giving him the whole truth. And before you know it, he comes to realize that this physician is not a physician at all, but rather it's the devil in disguise. Now, when he realizes this and the devil realizes that he's been found out, uh, St. Gregory the Great tells us that the devil runs, which I think is awesome. Like what kind of boss do you have to be for the devil to run from you? But any up even further, when the devil runs, Benedict decides to run after him. So he's like running after, like white beard flowing in the winter, you know, just majestically. And finally, finally when he finally catches the devil, uh, the devil is now possessed a monk. He went in there to administer medicine, he was there to administer spiritual affliction, so in that moment, the story says that Benedict performs an exorcism in the only way a boss knows how. Does anybody heard the story? He grabs the monk who is really the devil, and wham! He socks him right in the face, and the devil leaves. It's amazing, right? Okay, so um, did did anybody sing the song when you were in Sunday school, your little kid? Um, if I had a little white box to put my Jesus in, anybody raise your hand if you sing it. Okay, about twenty of us. So what was? It? I'd take him out and kiss his face and share him with a friend. You don't know this? I feel like a fool. Okay, well there was a second verse. There's a second verse for those of you who do know this. You remember who was the second verse about? the devil. If I had a little red box, you made kids sing weird stuff when they're in Sunday school. I'm just saying a little red box to put the devil in. I'd take him out. And now what was your translation? Anybody who's saying, what did you say next? what did y'all say, Travis? Punch his face. Punch his face! Yeah, I was talking to somebody this past week where they said, um, at my church, we said, I'd take him out and spank, 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 and put. I'm like, spank, spank, spank. No, 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 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, in Davidson County, all the third grade boys waited for this moment in Sunday school where we got to punch his face. And now I know, like 25 years later, it was blessed by Benedict, one of the saints of the church. What are you even talking about, Tyler? Okay, so this is a medal of Benedict. I think we have a picture of a medal of Benedict. Uh, many Roman Catholics today will wear this on their body because they believe it protects them from poisoning. Uh, you read, read the assassination attempts. You'll, you'll understand. And also the devil, as the story I just showed you uh, tells. I carry it around because it reminds me of Benedict's rule of life. Which, by the way, is what I believe to be his greatest contribution to mankind. You know what Benedict's greatest contribution was? Most historians will agree. It is not ex-Benedict, okay? <laughs> it's, not named, it's not even named after him. It's, it's the Benedictine rule of life. The rule of life written by Saint Benedict. This is an English copy of it. Uh, it's uh, 96 pages long, it's pretty short. It has 73 chapters, and each chapter is like a page, though. So you can read it real quick. And basically, Benedict wrote this to help form, shape, and guide the communities that he lived in to live in the way of Jesus. It would help people live constantly in the presence of Jesus. It would help people allow Jesus to invade every second of their day so they could constantly be formed in him. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, the impact of this on Western Christianity and really Western civilization is incalculable. Brief summary of the sort of things that you'll find in Benedict's rule. Uh, First, he forbade anyone who entered into his community to have private ownership of anything, no accumulation of wealth or possessions. Five hours a day they had to do productive work. Two hours a day, minimum, uh, you had to spend time in reading. There were several times of day, for the record, let's bring that reading real back, come on. For several times a day of daily prayer, uh, you were uh, charged with regular acts of charity and it demanded all sorts of virtues from you. Theological virtues like love for God and remembrance of his mercy. Humanitarian virtues like care for the poor, clothe the naked, love thy enemy, bury the dead. Um, and also it offered wise advice don't drink too much wine. Don't talk too much. Reconcile with your brother or sister quickly. It's a a really beautiful book. And again, its impact is beyond what you'd ever believe. Now, Tyler, why in the world are you talking about Benedict and this rule? Well, here's how this gets personal for me. What many of you don't know is that in the year 2005, you can do the math and calculate my age. I was 19 years old. I started my freshman year of college at a liberal arts school just south of Charlotte, North Carolina called Belmont Abbey College, Belmont Abbey. And you can hear it in the name. It was an abbey. This is. A, can you go back to the previous one? This first picture right here is a picture of the basilica there. It was in the 90s, I think, named a minor basilica by Pope John Paul II, which was a big deal. Behind it, you can see it's the living quarters for 30 Benedictine monks who lived on the campus and served the campus. The next picture is a picture of Abbey Lane. It's where I walked to go to classes every day. I think it's one of the most beautiful little roadways on any college campus you will find when it snowed. Oh my goodness, just beauty. And uh, this is a picture of the seal in the middle of campus. You can see one of the monks, that's Father Christopher, walking right there with his black habit on. Uh, And uh, the legend was if you stepped on the seal, it was bad luck, so none of us ever stepped on it. But beautiful, beautiful place. Now when I went to Belmont Abbey, As a freshman, I went there to play baseball, and I don't know, I thought I'd maybe do pre law or something and become a lawyer. By the time I graduated four years later, I had a degree in theology from a Catholic school, which was eye opening in so many beautiful ways. I had three years of ministry experience and a big heart for the local church. That place shaped me. The land was actually uh, purchased and purchased and founded as an educational center and a religious community by Benedictine monks in the late 1800s. They wanted to to be a religious community that educated youth. Fast forward 120 years later, there I was graduating as part of the legacy of these monks. My freshman year, there was a freshman symposium class. Every freshman had to take it, three-hour credit, where we had to read and study the rule of St. Benedict. I was acquainted with him far earlier than I wanted to be in life. Uh, The monk's role was simply to follow the rule of Benedict and serve the campus. So, some of them tended the grounds. Uh, There was one who was a cross country coach, and several were professors. Uh, As I mentioned him earlier, one of my favorite professors was Father Christopher. He uh, was one of my theology profs, and he took a special liking to me. You got to understand, I was very peculiar to them. I was the first Protestant ever in their theology program. It only had Catholics up to that point. And I came from like a small little country slice of evangelicalism, right? So like, it was just, it was an interesting uh, mixing of of two worlds. They're so charitable to me. Father Chris would invite me for espresso. We'd talk theology, come to my ball games. He also didn't cut me slack though. I think he graded my papers harder because if I was gonna disagree with him, and his theology, I better dot I's and cross T's. There were times where I would uh, accidentally father, fall, fall asleep in his, his class. And, and he would come by and whack me on the head or kick me on the leg. It was one time he knocked me out of my desk. He kicked me so hard. I cannot lie to you. And by the way, if you read the rule of St. Benedict, you'll know that that is some old school Benedictine discipline. It is in the rule, right? But I'm, I'm grateful for it. They were so charitable to me. In my time at Belmont Abbey, I learned that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than the slice of it that I grew up in. Something that's really important for all of us to learn. Now, again, why am I going on on this? Well, here's why. Because when I was there, me and my classmates thought that these monks were weird. Peculiar to say the least. They were kind and sweet people, but what they had given their lives to, you only get one life, you get one. And they were walking around campus wearing these black habits. It's like a a long hoodie with a rope around their waist. They'd taken vows of celibacy, which at 19, that seems insane. And, And they would spend hours upon hours of their day in silence and solitude, stillness, quiet. It was just strange to us. Fast forward 15 years later... And I think these Benedictines may have the corner of the market on how to live a life with God. Now, I am not suggesting today that we all become nuns and monks. Hear me out here. What I am suggesting is that we have a lot to learn from their way of life. In fact, while their way of life may look peculiar to us, from the perspective of the kingdom of God, I think, at least from God's throne or from Jesus' vantage point, on the throne at God's right hand, their life looks more normal than ours does with what they give their time and their attention, their hearts, their days to. Yeah, they may look different to the world. That's part of the problem with us. We look no different than the world. Spend our money in the same way, live in the same houses, listen and watch and consume the same content, live the same sort of life. So I think there's something to this. Now, if I had to boil down kind of my opinion, the secret ingredients that we could learn from the Benedictines, I would boil them down to three points. Will you repeat these three after me? First, repeat after me. Uh, I'm not going to be owned by hurry. Second, uh, I'm not going to be formed by popular culture. And uh, third, I'm not going to follow alone. That's where we're heading over the next two months with this series, Unhurried Rhythms. Today, I wanna introduce these three to you. First, I'm not gonna be owned by hurry. Uh, John Ortberg is one of my favorite Christian writers. You may have heard of him before. Um, who, who, who was this man? Or is it, who is this man? I don't know, go buy the book. It's one of the most impactful books for me personally ever. Ortberg wrote it. Now, Ortberg recounts this story in a lot of his uh, Uh, A lot of his writings of an encounter he had with his mentor, Dallas Willard. He he says he's at the height of his career at this point. He's a best-selling Christian author. He's a teaching pastor at one of the most influential churches in the world. He had young kids, like life full. Life is just up and to the right. All the speaking requests, all the writing requests, so full of doing for God. But he says, um, he recalls from this period, that in the middle of all this doing for God, he had lost his ability of being with god he was seen as a spiritual guru by the world but he hit a lid if you will in terms of his own spiritual maturity process so he calls up willard uh, his mentor who just so happens to be one of the great thinkers and philosophers of the 20th century this is the conversation that they have he says i told him about the present condition of my heart as best as i could discern it what i need to do i asked him to be spiritually healthy long pause And Ortberg recalls that Willard was famous for for pausing. Just a long, uncomfortable time. It's a long pause. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He said at last. Another long pause. Okay, I've written that one down. I told him a little impatiently. That's a good one. Now what else is there? I had many things to do. And this was a long distance call. Y'all remember those? So I was anxious to cram as many units of wisdom into the least amount of time as possible. Another long pause. There is nothing else, he said. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now I believe Willard is right in this cultural moment. I believe that hurry is one of the great enemies to spiritual life of our day. In fact, I would go as far to say that hurry is one of the underlying issues beneath all of the other issues in our culture. Think about it our workaholism, what's underneath that? Our mental and physical unhealth. Hurry is one of the things underneath that, the disintegration of the family. The epidemic of loneliness. The slow death of Christianity in America. What's what's underneath that? One of the core issues underneath all those symptoms is our hurried life. Now, what is hurry, Tyler? Well, I want to be clear. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a full life. A hurried life is when your life gets so full... And so frantic that like your brain and your body speeds up in such a way that you can't be present really, at least not fully in any moment. You can't be present to an experience. You can't be present in a relationship. You can't appreciate it to its full degree and and thus honor God for it. You can't love someone with all you are because you're just not fully present there. You're too in a hurry. And I'll go ahead and tell you, at least for me personally, this is one of the underlying issues that I'm constantly wrestling down in my own life. Probably for the last six years, this little tidbit from Willard has been one of the ones I've just continued to hold onto and refine my life with. Uh, I think it was 2019, John Mark Comer wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which just kind of distills so many thoughts on this. I think you should buy that one, right? Um, But some of you guys are shaking your head out there because you've read it. You should buy that one. But, okay, so, so for me, when I get hurried, that's when I have a tendency to get impatient and snippy mostly with my wife and kids. Anyone else? When I get hurried, that's when I feel the most discontent with my life. Why? Because I want my life to be up and to the right, and I want it to be up and to the right faster. I don't want it to be up and to the right like normal people up and to the right. I want it to be like Tyler up and to the right, fast, now, best, here, right? And like so I'm never content with where I'm at. And so because then I'm also insecure because why is it not more up into the right? I read this story about this one leader who, you know, with like within the first two weeks had this, mu- or whatever, right? And so you just start playing those games in your mind. When I'm hurried, it's when I'm the most lonely because I don't tend to deep friendships. When I'm hurried, it's, the, it's when I'm the most addicted to my devices because I'm constantly checking emails, going to the text messages, and then going to social media and the messenger and then rinse, recycle, repeat every two to three minutes. You know, the kind, the kind of app cycle that you go through. When I'm hurried, it's when I'm the most exhausted. My pace, this is what my pace used to be. And this was as recent as a few years ago. I would go as hard as I can until I would crash for a few days. So like I could, I could run hard. I could run hard for like a month straight, just go, 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 go. But then I would need two to three days to just sleep. I remember we went, me and Lindsay went to this uh, pastor's conference, which was like a pseudo vacation for us. We were there for four days. Um, when we got there, the first two days, I just slept the whole time. I would go to session, come back to the hotel room, and sleep. She's like, are you okay? <laughs> I think. <laughs> no, clearly. Clearly, no. <laughs> when I'm hurried, I don't pray. I love to pray, by the way. One of the goals of this series, one of the goals of this year is to teach you to pray. I love to pray. But C.S. Lewis's spiritual uh, director once said, hurry is the death of prayer. When I'm hurried, I can't read because my attention span in terms of reading, just goes. When I'm hurried, my physical health goes down the toilet because meal prepping and exercising and all that stuff, it takes time and energy. This is what I'm saying. When, When Tyler gets to the hurried version of himself, I do not feel or experience the presence of God in my life. That's the very thing I was created for. Now, am I the only one here? Or did I just, at least in part, describe your life too? I bet I'm not the only one. I bet. You see, most of us are just addicted to hurry. We use it as this sort of self-medication so we don't have to think about the problems of our life or we don't have to be bored because when we get bored, we start thinking about life's big questions or we have to deal with that trauma back in the back of our brains. Or for some of us, we just like hurry. Come on, let's be honest. Hurry makes you feel necessary. Hurry makes you feel important. It makes you feel kind of great. Do you brag about your busy? This is a sure tell sign that you may be in a hurry. Do you brag about your busy? It's like a badge of honor that you wear? Hey, how you doing? How's the week going? So busy. <laughs> what I'm trying to create, at least among the, the staff that I rub shoulders with the most often, is that we don't affirm that anymore. If I say, hey, how you doing? and you say, Who busy too many times? Then my response to you is, I'm not impressed. Because that's not how God's called us to live. Oh, here's one. Do you ever lie about your busy? Your hurry? Think about how deformed your heart is when you feel like you have to lie about being busy. I used to have a coworker who would do this all the time. They would talk about how busy and crazy their schedule was, and I'm like, "I know your schedule. You're really not actually that busy." But, but, but they would they would like exaggerate it and whip it up, and I would think to myself, "Why do they feel like they need to do that?" I guess it was to get either the pity or the admiration of others. Do you ever lie about your hurry? Think about the unhealthy relationship that's there with that. Look here's the key y'all it's not jesus hurry is not jesus all it takes is a cursory re- reading of his life to see how how full his life was but how unhurried of a pace he actually lived at first did you know that for the first 30 years of jesus life basically lives in obscurity like how much do we know about jesus before his ministry not all that much we know that he was a craftsman by trade, which means he worked with his hands, and then it took time. It took time for him to build stuff. Then when he starts his ministry, Onyemart gets set, go. How does he start it? With like a Billy Graham crusade where thousands come to Jesus in a full schedule? No, On your mark gets set, go. He goes out into the wilderness and prays and fasts and fights the devil. Guy's not in a hurry. If you read his teachings, he's consistently saying things like, not yet, or mysteriously slowing people down, like, Yeah, I know I just did this amazing life changing miracle for you, but tell no one about it. We we'll don't get this thing fired up too quickly. It's interesting if you read John chapter 2, it seems like his mother almost forces his hand to do his first miracle. Have you ever read this story? John 2, water to wine, and Cana. It's like Jesus, like, it's not my hour, Mom, I'm not ready. Okay, and his mom's like, do it for mama. Okay, and he's like, fine. And it, on, on your market set, go. He's just off into his ministry almost before he's ready. He's constantly allowing interruptions. He's often found sharing long meals. He invests in three, uh, he invests uh, for over three years in just a few disciples. He's consistently spending time in prayer and seclusion. And at the heart of his teaching is love, peace, joy, and life. And I have found that when I'm hurried, I'm the most unloving unpeaceful, unjoyful, unlife-giving version of Tyler. So look, if Jesus' great command is love, if Jesus was love in the flesh, then what do we learn? Well, we learn that love walks at the pace of slow. Jesus was unhurried, and as his followers Repeat after me, I'm not going to be owned by hurry. You liars. It's an aspirational goal, I know. But that's what we're after in this series. Second, I'm not gonna be formed by popular culture. I'm not gonna be formed by popular culture. Okay, so uh, one of the big critiques of the monastics, especially by evangelical armchair quarterbacks 1,500 years later, was that they didn't care enough about evangelism. They abdicated their evangelistic responsibility by leaving the lost and leaving the sinners and going off into the wilderness, right? And I think there is some truth to that, some. But you gotta understand this. Guys like Benedict, they they were highly evangelistic. You read his story. He led hundreds of people to Christ by his preaching. He had just come to a place where he believed that no human being, no matter their level of spiritual maturity, could live in the Roman empire without being deformed by it. It had just gotten that bad. And there are many Christian thought leaders today that believe that Western society has gotten that bad. It's reached kind of this, I don't know, tipping point at the edge where, because of big data and big tech, the way that society is capable of manipulating our thoughts and manipulating our behavior, it's just dangerous. It's profoundly more dangerous than any of us are willing to admit. Most of us, uh, most of us recognize at this point. It's a a really scary town to live in. Think about how this has bewitched people that you love. People in our country. Think about how far right the right has gotten and how far left the left has gotten and how sometimes you sit and you read the headlines or you watch what's getting retweeted and you're like, how did it get there? Think about how human ideologies and philosophies have just captured people that you love. Politics, secularism, individualism, consumerism, materialism, nationalism, the sexual revolution, white supremacy, whatever it is, it's pulling people, capturing people, and directing people their lives. I, the stories I could tell you over the last 18 to 24 months is you watch how people have just flipped. It's like a switch flipped in their brain or something happened to them like, who? I don't even know who you are anymore. One of the things that I feel like we're consistently dealing with right now as pastors is people who are Jesus followers. Some of them have been Jesus followers their whole, whole life. They're well-meaning, good people, but they're living out of a set of assumptions that are contradictory to the kingdom of God but then they're taking like random scriptures or random stories from Jesus's life, co-opting them and using them to baptize this human philosophy that they're living out of. It's like, how how do you even deal with that? I think one of the issues is we've just underestimated the enemy underestimated them. So from the perspective of the New Testament, and this may be weird or off-putting for some of you, from the perspective of the New Testament, we are in a spiritual war. There's spiritual warfare threaded throughout. Jesus believes this, Paul believes this. You just can't deny it when you read the New Testament. We are at, at, at war. Uh, now the war is not against people, those people on that side of the issue. The war is, according to the scripture, is against the powers and the principalities behind those people. It's a spiritual war. So there is an enemy. His name's the Satan, the devil. He inhabits with his demonic hordes and good spiritual entities a spiritual dimension just out of our sight, and it impacts the material dimension that we live in. That's the perspective. Oh, and the perspective is also that the devil is more beautiful than you'd ever think, but he's also more crafting and cunning and scheming than you'd ever think. And he has a strategy to destroy every individual in this room. Every family in this room, every church, every community, and every nation. And right now in your life, he's passing off lies as truth. He's that good. And we're almost helpless, defenseless against them without the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. It's a war. According to the New Testament, we can't fight this war passively. It's a war, right? You have to be on the offensive, you have to be on the defensive. You have to attack, you have to resist. The question is, though, when you look at your life, how much resistance is there? Are you putting up any walls of resistance? And like for so many people, we welcome the voices of deformation and counterformation into our lives. It's like, come on. Tech is the best example of this. I'm just, you guys know I rail on this a lot. It is because it's that big of a deal. So in 2017, the first president of Facebook, a guy named Sean Parker did an interview with Axios. Did anybody read this? You heard this this interview? Okay, so it's fast. So now he's the first president of Facebook, but now he calls himself a conscientious objector to social media. This is what he said in the Axios interview. Uh, He said, God only knows what social media is doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, TikTok ain't discluded, y'all. From Facebook to TikTok and everything in between to doing this. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to sort of give you like a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're, expo- listen to this, you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The inventors and creators, you know, it's me, it's Zuckerberg, it's Kevin Sistrom on Instagram, it's all those people. The inventors and creators understood this consciously. And we did it anyways. Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook. So this is what you got to understand. You understand when you're on social media, you are not the customer, you're the product. That's the business model. To get your attention, to get your data, then to sell your attention and data to the highest bidder. That's, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. That's the business model. And there's billions of dollars behind it. There's multi-million dollar corporations behind it. The big brands are using it. Some of the most powerful entities on earth, the GOP, the DNC. Go look at how much the Trump and Biden campaign spent on Facebook ads alone the last election. Hundreds of millions of dollars, y'all. And the goal is to distract you, addict you, and then manipulate your behavior. And they're good. They're good. Psalm uh, 115 verse eight. The psalmist says this, he says, and those who make idols are just like them as are all who trust in them. And I think this is a succinct bullseye theological analysis. Translation, what we give our attention to is what we worship. And what we worship is who we become. Think about this. We are an entire generation right now. We are a part of an entire generation right now who the last thing they do when they go to bed is what? What do we do? Turn on Netflix, whatever streaming service it is, watch a couple hours of some random show, which is like a concoction of soft porn and also like a secular vision for family or work or money or our bodies or relationships or whatever, right? We fill our minds with that for a couple hours every evening. Then we go to bed. And the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is what? We get on social media and we allow that rage or that jealousy and envy to sink its teeth into our hearts first thing. We get on that news site and we allow the spin or the catastrophizing to sink its teeth into our brain and what that does to us. I'm just telling you, this is not gonna form you into the way of Jesus. All right, now let's tie all this together to where we're going over the next two months because we're just, we're out of time. Uh, We're starting today and we're gonna run this through February. It's just a longer series. Um, a series that we've called Unhurried Rhythms. And the goal of this series is to wake you up to some of the rhythms of spiritual deformation in your life and help you unplug those and then replace them with rhythms of spiritual formation. Unhurried, ancient rhythms to help us spend more time in the presence of Jesus day in and day out in our lives. This is a series on spiritual formation. Now, I I, I would suggest to you that there are three main filters that most of us use for decision making. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. There's the ethics filter. Is this right or wrong? There's the the enjoyment or the pleasure filter. Does this feel good? Is it going to be fun? And then there's the achievement filter. Is this moving the bottom line? Is this moving the needle? Is this getting us closer to, to our goals, right? You may lean more heavier to one than the other, but for most of us, we make decisions out of some combination of these three. Is it right? Does it feel good? And, uh, and is this gonna move me towards the goal, right? But from a spiritual formation mindset, from a kingdom mindset, we actually operate out of a decision-making filter that is even more fundamental than these three. This is what we're after in this series. I'd call it the formation filter, the formation filter. This is when you begin to ask yourself this question. Of everything you do, who am I becoming? Who's this forming me into? What is this making me like? That's the question of the Jesus follower. By the way, have you ever taken audit of your day and asked yourself of everything you do, all your rhythms and routines and that, like who's this, who's this making me into? Have you ever asked yourself this of your politician that you love so much? Like who is this politician forming me to love and who is who's this politician telling me to hate? And is that okay? Uh, Have you asked this of your Netflix show? Like, how's this shaping me? What's the vision of the good life this is giving me? Have you asked this of the content that you let your kids ingest? What is this teaching them about the purpose of life or who the heroes are, the good guys and the bad guys? What about your device usage? How's this shaping? How's this forming my relationships? What about the friends that you rub shoulders with the most often? How are they rubbing off on me? Is it a way towards Jesus or is it away from Jesus? How is this spiritually forming me? See, here's what you come to find out. everything's spiritual formation, everything, everything that you do, every habit and routine is a spiritual discipline. The question is, is what is it forming your spirit? What is it forming your soul to do? You may roll your eyes at this whole, okay, monks and Benedict and rule of life. But here's what I know about you. You already have a rule of life, whether you know it or not. You have a morning routine when you wake up. You have a routine when you go to work. You have a weekly rhythm at work where you have meetings at this certain time and you have this culture that you're trying to build. You do these things at at lunch or around meals or breaks, you know, whatever. You have Saturday rhythms and a Sunday routine. You have holiday rhythms and summer routines. You have a rhythm before you go to bed every night. You have eating habits, you have reading habits. You have a rule of life. You may have never written it down You may have drifted into it unconsciously. In fact, I would just about guarantee that most of us drift into our rule of life unconsciously, but it is forming you. And the question of this series is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with who this is forming you into? Or do you want more of Jesus? See, I want more of Jesus. I would like to know what it's like to give him every moment of my attention. I'll never get there this side of heaven, but I'd like to try. If you'd like to go there, then I would invite you to go on this journey with us. It's going to take devotion, a deep love for Jesus. It's going to take courage, a willingness to live a peculiar way of life. It's gonna take discipline, willingness to unplug bad habits and plug in new, better, more godly habits. But if you've ever wondered what it's like to be like Peter, Andrew, James, or John following Jesus. Well, this is kind of what we're after in this series. So here's how I'd like to close. Would you repeat after me Uh, the following points of direction for our series? Let's just repeat this again. I'm not going to be owned by hurry. I'm going to walk with Jesus at the pace of love. I'm not going to be formed by popular culture. I'm going to let the rule of Jesus rule me. I'm not going to follow alone. I'm going to live in community with other Jesus followers. It's a beautiful way of life because Christianity is a team sport. Uh, just to turn you on to this, starting tomorrow on all of our social media accounts, we'll be posting like blogs and write-ups from our staff every day to help kind of guide you through this series and introduce you to some of these unhurried rhythms that we'll be teaching through. So I hope you'll check it out. If you're not on social media, good for you. Uh, it'll also be posted on our sermon site online. So if you go to our website and click like the watch on demand, but it'll be posted there with a the sermon so you can find it there. I want to close by reading you a quote from the rule of Benedict and then we'll take communion and go off to worship in our everyday lives. Uh, So Benedict did this interesting thing. If you wanted to join one of his communities, you had to go through like a year-long process to make sure that you're sure. And part of this process, twice, someone read the rule of St. Benedict to you. And in the prologue, the introduction to it, he had this this line that he would read over, uh, over, over those who wanted to join. This is a daunting, this is a rigorous rule, mind you. So this is kind of like a word of both, of both reality, but also reality check. This is what he, he wrote. He said, do not be daunted immediately by fear and run away from the road that leads to salvation. It's bound to be narrow at the outset. But as we progress in this way of life and in faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments, our hearts overflowing with the inexpressible delight of love. Never swerving from his instructions then, but faithfully observing his teaching in the monastery until death, we shall through patience share in the sufferings of Christ that we may deserve also to share in his kingdom. Amen. Translation, he says, the road is hard, but the inexpressible delight of love is worth it. So I hope you'll come on that journey with us.